From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, we listen back to my interview with journalist Bill Curtis. He is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a news quiz, which launched in 1998. He talks to me about how he started his journalistic career, his position as a CBS news anchor, his work at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. Also, it's my first week with a new microphone, which could not have been purchased without the help of you, our listeners. My mic, the Electrovoice RE20, is such an upgrade to my home studio, and I just love it. Thank you so much for your support. And the Geographical Location Challenge is back again with another new country on the leaderboards. All of this on the latest episode of News Nerds. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and stay with us. Let's now go to my interview with Bill Curtis. He is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a news quiz which was launched in 1998. He is a television and radio journalist, and he talks to me in this interview about that career, his position as a CBS news anchor, his work at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. Bill Curtis is a television and radio journalist who is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the news quiz from National Public Radio. He joins me now. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Ezra. Nice to be with you. So this is a very broad question, and I know that the whole story would take a long time to tell to me, but uh, where did your journey in journalism first begin? Well, it was my hometown of Independence, Kansas, and it was 1958. I had uh, just turned, well, not yet 18, but I was 16. And so I guess it was 56, and I got a license to work. Went down to the only radio station in town, as the old, uh, you know, story, traditional story goes. Uh, it was 250 watts in my hometown. And... Um, started there. It was the greatest uh, experience I had in terms of learning because the general manager was a wonderful mentor. And I learned how to spin records and uh, rip and read off the Associated Press wire. And I spent a couple years there before going on to college and law school. And it was a wonderful job to be able to work your way through these uh, places because you could study and work at the same time and make a little money while you're going to school. As a young man in your 20s, uh, what appealed to you about uh, doing the job as a journalist and reporting? Uh, you know, it's a good question because you can get some facts and being young, why they will, uh, you know, the newsmakers will give you a little break. But I didn't have the full confidence that what I was seeing was true. You know, you have to uh, learn to trust your observations and have enough confidence. That did not come until I was 33. And I was coming back from LA and I had to sort of earned my bones, as they say, in the gangster land. And um, you just get out there and have to work it. So you worked at the television station WIBW as you were working, um, and it was June of 1966, I believe. 
and there were heavy winds in Kansas where you were then. And your reporting there gained national attention after you were reporting for over 24 hours on the tornado that hit that town. So how did that influence uh, your later career? Well, it was a turning point. Yeah, so it was, in many ways, the beginning. I was going to be a lawyer. I had accepted a job uh, with a trial firm in Wichita. And suddenly the tornado was in front of me and I had to give the warning. It was headed for the town and the law school and uh, subdivisions. And I said, for God's sake, take cover. And we were the only television station in town. So everybody uh, was scared, knew something was coming and uh, took that warning and they went into the basements. And I realized that television could really be a force for good. Radio too. Um, but if you, one, are lucky, and are in the right place at the right time and work hard enough, stay with it. Journalism is fun. Uh, so off I, I send my tape, like they do today. Off I go to Chicago. I was hired at WBBM, and from then, 30 years with CBS and CBS News. Before you went into journalism, uh, did you not really, uh, did you not trust the television and did you not really like that kind of that medium yes um i thought it was I, it came so easy to me that i thought this wasn't really the serious thing i was supposed to do uh we were still coming out of the edward r murrow days and cronkite had just in 1963 started his half hour show and you know we weren't spending enough time in the network television to really be substantive and and so television had not yet television news had not yet found the platform from which it would grow into what we know today and so i said gosh i'm, I'm gonna go um, get a law degree couldn't hurt me uh, but in three years you want to then practice and uh, i had made my decision there before the tornado your wife and I, I don't know if kids were in your apartment while the tornado was uh, going through Kansas. Were you, I don't know if you remember this, but were you scared that night while you were uh, not with them covering the tornado for the whole, uh, the whole town? Yes, I was. Uh, I had a six month old baby, uh, my wife, Helen. Uh, was in the apartment, and I always told her that, oh, look, if, if it's really serious, I'll call you. Well, I couldn't. I was on the air, and uh, I had responsibilities. A friend uh, went in, and they said, look, you have to go. We'll go to the science building. We'll get down into the basement. So off she went and was leaning against the elevator as the air sucked up. The cars were in the trees. They were looking down from streetlights, you know, in the, in the parking lot. They were shoved, these, these are the cars shoved down into the uh, light well uh, between the basement and, and the uh, looking at cars. It looked like an ancient uh, Greek ruin uh, with, because the buildings had, had been totally destroyed. So yeah, I was uh, scared for them. I finally had a friend get through. And then after about an hour, all the phone lines were jammed anyway. 
because of uh, the downed lines. Why did you uh, pursue law in college if you already uh, ha had a career in journalism at the television station? Uh, well, journalism was not, uh, either on radio or television, uh, established uh, well. And uh, I thought law would give me the kind of um, substance and foundation that I could do almost anything. And so that's uh, why. I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I did some trial work, moot court route, uh, uh, moot court. I went to uh, St. Louis and was able to argue before uh, the judge uh, and the, the big judges, one of them uh, on the Supreme Court. And um, I would have gone into trial work had it not uh, been for the tornado. So that really influenced your career? No, oh, changed it completely. I'm happy it did. Oh. So you, you've uh, applied some investigative journalism skills throughout your career, and especially when you covered the uh, Agent Orange story in Vietnam. How did you use that skill later on in your, um, in your career, and how did you find that to be a useful tool uh, as a journalist? Well, I, and it's a very good question because uh, when I uh, started writing my investigative pieces and wanted to go out in the air with them, I was prepared enough to go to trial. Uh, so everybody's going to criticize you, and especially in Agent Orange, there were five large chemical companies that manufactured this defoliant that was spread over Vietnam on, on our own troops. Uh, unknowingly um, harming them. And uh, Dow Chemical, uh, Diamond Chemical, a number of other uh, big companies, you know, came, <laughs> wanted to knock me out of the park, just like the Veterans Administration. Oh, it's just a local station. Uh, we'll get rid of him. Um, because it was a big story that's still going today. Uh, because veterans are still uh, being hurt by the chemical that got in their, their fatty tissue. And when they lose weight, it's released. So you have a ticking time bomb in some of these veterans that um, then comes in the form of cancers. And there are 50 diseases now that are recognized by the Veterans Administration as having been caused by Agent Orange. 200,000 veterans have been compensated so far. So it was a big story. And uh, I was ready to go to trial, not that I would have gone to trial, but I was uh, that rock solid. And that has helped me, well, I covered four trials of the century, as they call Manson, the conspiracy trial in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention that is now up for uh, an Oscar, and um, Angela Davis in you know, a terrible uh, murder, and then Juan Corona, who was the largest serial killer uh, in American history, 25 uh, itinerant laborers in Yuba City, California. You went on to uh, work at CBS News, CBS Morning News, and uh, I know that some of my listeners have recognized your voice from there. Uh, how did you get that job, and did you like being in that position? Well, I liked it, uh, except for one thing, having to get up early. Uh, it was three o'clock call. And I would walk down Broadway in New York 
and you'd come on and then you had to do a two hour live broadcast uh, every morning. So it was fun uh, sitting alongside Diane Sawyer and uh, Maria Shriver and uh, a lot of the great uh, anchors. And we were, you know, using satellites for the first time and bringing in live reports from um, a lot of places, but not nearly to the extent that they're used today. So we, we felt that we were sort of guinea pigs and experimenters. Uh, and then Phyllis George came along. And I, then I realized, you know, I'm not writing like I would used to be. I'm not reporting because all my time is spent anchoring. And so I want to go back where I can do that. So I came back to Chicago in 1986 and spent three years there and um, wrote a contract so I could start my own production company. And I was off to the races. Let's fast forward to uh, the 2000s when you got the job as the scorekeeper for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a very well-known show that millions listen to every week. And there's millions of downloads for the podcast. How did you end up getting the job as the scorekeeper? Peter Sagal and I, he's the star, uh, but I, we were friends and, uh, uh, you know, he said, look, uh, there's a, there's a role for a very straight newsman and uh, could you fill in until we get somebody? Well, I filled in, I did okay. And I said, you know, all my career, I've been unable to laugh, smile, have fun on the air because news is serious business. And I was, I was laughing with the group, not telling the jokes. They were telling the jokes. Paula Poundstone, Mo Rocca, uh, you know, the great panelists. And um, they, they said, well, maybe you would like to uh, do it full time. And so I said, yeah, I certainly would. It's great to do in your retirement. And last night we taped in our homes and then you'll hear it again on Saturday morning. On Saturday morning. So you and the panel and Peter are the the kind of, you're the actual voices that are heard on the broadcast. But what goes on behind the scenes in production at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Well, we all like each other. And we were in Atlanta for one thing, uh, when the, and all set to go in front of an audience of 5,000 on a stage in the old Fox Theater, I think it was. Um, and the, pan- uh, the pandemic came along and they said, well, you've got to stop it. You've got to cancel the show tonight. So we left uh, everything on stage and uh, did it to an empty theater. And from then on, we have uh, sort of performed for an audience of no one, as uh, Peter says in the beginning. Uh, we'll drop in some, uh, some but th- this is interesting, some audience sounds. Um, we'll, we'll record it just like we're recording now. And then our editors, um, Lorna White and uh, Robert Newhouse, uh, put it all together, take out the bad words and uh, make a nice acceptable radio. And uh, they do that in a day uh, and probably less than a day. And they've been doing that for years. They were been on were 20 years old. I've been there six years. And um, it comes out all right. 
it's it's fun. So behind the scenes, why all these uh, panelists are stand-up comedians. So they'll be at Zany's or the comedy club all around. And there's a network of people who will either go on Saturday Night Live or come in just like, uh, uh, you know, they were doing, they stand up comedy. And uh, we're all friends. Uh, and it's kind of, it's also like um, vaudeville, where the vaudeville family will go from town to town. And it may be different every, and they think, oh, well, uh, it's great. Utah, uh, Red Rocks in, in Colorado, that must be fun. Well, we never get to see anything because we go in, we rehearse in the afternoon, do the show, and we're out. So uh, vaudeville, theatrics is the key. Uh, Where Were You Don't Tell Me was meant to be uh, made the second car talk, which I also listened to on Saturdays. Oh, but uh, that, they were, uh, Where Were You Don't Tell Me was originally made by uh, Doug Berman, yes. benevolent yes. overlord. Uh-huh. Uh, and he, uh, he made the idea of a news quiz on radio. So is it hard to kind of fill the legacy of Car Talk now that that, that program is off the air? And I know that you weren't, you weren't at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from the beginning, but do you ever think about, uh, you know, the legacy of that past program and how you're con- continu- continuing like a, a comedic national public radio? Yes, uh, I certainly do. And uh, the legacy of Carl Castle. Uh, I replaced him, and those were big, big shoes. Wonderful guy. Uh, But Doug is with us, and Doug is in a rehearsal. I I guess I didn't complete the behind the scenes, in a rehearsal that we have the afternoon of the broadcast. So it would have been yesterday afternoon. And we go through the script. They've been working all week, three or four days. Uh, Ian Shillog, uh, Mike Danforth, uh, Peter Gwynn, um, Miles uh, Dornboss, all uh, Jennifer, uh, just working, going through the internet, trying to find the quirky little stories that we would report and make jokes about. Then um, we kind of try them out on everybody. That's the key because it's the our, our artistic process uh, to find out what's funny. Is he going to laugh? I'm the straight one. I'm the old guy. And so they listen to me. If I'm laughing, why? They know they've got something good. Um, pretty straight. And um, But car talk, yes. It's kind of the grand old daddy. And Doug, has, is it firm in his mind what the show should be and keeps us on track? And that's very important because otherwise why we'd be flying off. Mo Rocca is kind of the wild man and so is Paula Poundstone, uh-huh. our star. And that is the great stuff that makes it interesting. Right. And car talk, they just laugh all the time, no matter if it's <laughs> funny or not. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so you know that they make me laugh all the time just from their booming laughs that I hear every week. Uh, and that's whenever I hear you laughing on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I laugh too, because that's, I, I don't hear you enough on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. <laughs> you uh, do not do the interviewing for when you have uh, the guests on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That's uh, Peter's job. 
but have you found any of your guests um, really interesting uh, that you've recently had on Wait, Wait? Yeah, well, last night uh, we had Andre de Shields, and uh, he is a Broadway star. Um, and he just is the king of cool. Uh, Edna, Dame Edna was one of my favorites because uh, she kind of gave it to uh, Peter. And she said to Peter, uh, you know, you're better than this job. You don't need to do this. And it <laughs> got him off the track. John Hamm was very good, got all three right. Dan Rather got all three right. Um, a Supreme Court justice didn't do very well. So we'll have, uh, it was, I think, Stephen Breyer. We'll have the, the big guys. Uh, you started making COVID-19 PSAs, some of which I know you've done uh, washing, hand-washing ones on Wait, Wait, um, and then you have some on the YouTube channel online. How did you get the idea to start making the masking up COVID PSAs and then the hand-washing PSAs? Yes. Well, uh, it, there was a need, a need to get people to start wearing a mask. And I said, how can I be creative and use the techniques of old time radio uh, and kind of put it together in a production that's interesting? So um, my first one was um, driving down Lakeshore Drive. Then it goes a little like, it was raining on Lakeshore Drive. I got a call to go to the beach, woman in distress. I pulled over. I said, you're not wearing a mask. She said, I don't need a mask. I said, everybody needs a mask. Uh, she said, oh, you big palooka, give me, give me a ride home. And I said, no, you're not wearing a mask. Um, and she said, <laughs> it goes like that. I'm, we did one on the Gladiator, and um, you can pull those up and use them if you want. Gladiator, and Lone Ranger, in a world. In a world where a pandemic is sweeping, wear a mask. Don't be a killer. <laughs> and before we end this interview, you're also involved in sustainable agriculture. And I know that Kansas really means a lot to you. Um, since you were raised, you were born in Florida, but were raised in Independence, which I know very well from the Little House on the Prairie series yeah. and, uh, and other th things. But... Uh, you're involved in sustainable agriculture, so grass-fed beef, organic produce. What brought you into this? Well, I bought a ranch, and I have uh, a lot of acreage down there, and it's uh, not suited for corn or soybeans cultivation. Uh, it's cattle country. It's the rest of the world. And so I wanted to get into the cattle business, but I didn't like the CAFOs, which are... Uh, the feedlots, because they just kind of force feed corn into the cattle. And then in six months or eight months, they put weight on really fast, get up to about 1,100 pounds, and uh, that's what you're eating. And the fat in that uh, animal, you know, isn't good for you because it also has antibiotics that get through to you. So it's not that healthy. But grass-fed beef that doesn't have those ingredients is healthy, much healthier. And so it takes longer, it's a little tougher. So it's difficult to get people to really buy grass-fed beef. 
And uh, so I kind of passed that on to somebody else. But I love going to the prairie. Prairie where Little House on the Prairie, now a museum. Uh, and Laura Ingalls Wilder and the family. She grew up and climbed through the tunnels made out of the grass where the rabbits went. The Osage Indians aren't very happy because uh, it was a reservation and uh, Charles Ingalls got there before he was supposed to. So he eventually had to move out after a year. Now they want to come in and um, create an Indian village uh, on the little house right with us. So when you come to Kansas, you'll be able to go to our one-room schoolhouse and replica log cabin and their Indian village of the Osage Reservation. Yeah, and I know that y you and your sister, I think, uh, have the the rights to that, uh, that schoolhouse. How did you uh, end up getting that schoolhouse? It was my grandmother's, and she goes back a long way, would uh, walk a mile or more to get to school. And so we moved it onto our plot of land, uh, which is now the museum uh, area. Um, and Sunnyside is the name of it. We're not Disneyland, um, but we're real and authentic. And so there's a great feeling there that this is the real thing. Thanks so much for talking to me today. And um, it's just been a pleasure to, to see you and to hear the voice of Bill Curtis again. Ezra, I dub you the next Walter Cronkite. You're just good. Very good. So congratulations. And I'm very impressed. I'm impressed. That's Bill Curtis. He's a television and radio journalist who is currently the scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is an NPR game show. Let's now go to the Geographical Location Challenge. With first place internationally, the United States with 96% of all news nerds listeners. Norway takes second place with 1% of all news nerds listeners. And the third place runners up this week are Portugal, Australia, Canada, Germany, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, France, Bosnia and Herzegovina, India, Switzerland, Spain, South Africa, Finland, Thailand, and I believe for the first time Ever we have the Netherlands. Let's go to our U.S. challenge. We have our winner, Virginia, with 13% of all news nerds listeners in the United States and first place this week. New Jersey and Ohio both have 7% of all news nerds listeners in the United States, and they take second place. And Washington this week takes third with 6%. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps our ratings. Another way to listen is by listening on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM.
Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KGVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. Until next week, bye-bye.